1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Jazz Podcast, a collaboration between the New Books Network and the Journal of Asian American Studies. I am your host, Chris Patterson, and today, for our first installment of the podcast, we are going to discuss a unique, special issue. In December 2019, two scholars of Asian America, Aaron Kuenin and Shireen Roshan-Ravan, publicized a call for papers unlike any other in the journal's history. This was The We To Reader a call not for conventional scholarship, but for submissions of art, poetry, fiction, and memoir. The editors wanted to know, what does sexual violence look like in the lives of those hailed as quote-unquote model minority? What are Asian American lived experiences of sexual violence in everyday spaces like college campuses, childhood homes, graduate programs, activist organizations, corporate offices, and on the street? Intended as a reader for the college classroom... The We Too special issue sought works that made language and theory relevant and workable for our students' understanding of their own lives and experiences. A brief content warning. The following will involve discussions of sexual assault and mental health. Please be advised and take care.
2: It's very clear how slow. I mean, the germination process was like step by step by step to get to this point in the special issue.
1: I'm here with Erin Cuenin and Shireen roshan Ravan, the two editors of the We Too Reader. Erin teaches Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara, where she writes about the model minority as racialization and subject formation, not myth. She has a monograph about intergenerational conflict called Ingratitude, the debt-bound daughter in Asian American literature, and a crossover book coming out in a few months on college imposters called Passing for Perfect. My other guest, Shereen Roshan ravan teaches in the American Ethnic Studies Department at Kansas State University and is co-editor of the book, Asian American Feminism and Women of Color Politics, as well as the book, Speaking Face to Face, The Visionary Philosophy of Maria Lugones. So what first initiated the conversations between you both for this special issue?
3: So um, to answer that question, I actually am going to take us back to 2014, because at the uh, 2014, I think it was the 2014 um, Asian American Studies Conference, Association for Asian American Studies Conference, um, I attended and so did my colleague, Lynn Fujiwara, who's um, a professor in ethnic studies at University of Oregon. And we happened to find ourselves uh, one of the evenings talking and we were lamenting the lack of feminist, uh, panels or panels with feminist content, um, at the AAAS conference. And so we happened to be having that conversation in front of, um, the editor in chief at university of Washington press. Um, and as we talked more, you know, both of us, um, reflected on the fact that, when we, te- we both taught courses in women of color feminisms in our respective departments, we, both of us struggled to find um, collections that we felt presented Asian American feminisms um, as you know, a constellation of concepts, strategies, uh, ways of reading the world and identifying the specifics of the lived violence um, and resistances in, you know, front, through an Asian American feminist lens. And um, in, in we, co- we contrasted this specifically to like the easiness with which we were able to find collections on Black, f- that foregrounded Black feminist thought or Chicana feminist thought or Indigenous feminist thought. And so um, uh, Lauren McLaughlin, who's the editor-in-chief at UW Press, uh, overheard us and, and encouraged us to do a collection ourselves. And so that's what became the Asian American Feminisms and Women of Color Politics collection that um, Lynn and I co edited. And of course, we invited Erin um, to submit, and her contribution really blew us both away in the ways that it um, just asked questions around sexual violence um, in Asian American studies and also in writings uh, framed as Asian-American feminist interrogations and analyses, calling those fields to task for sort of not grappling with the the lived experiences of sexual violence in Asian-Americans who fit, you know, the description of the model minority. So not the person going to war, the, you know, uh, immigrant wife in an arranged marriage, but, you know, those in their teens and in college who are navigating rape culture as Asian Americans. And so, um, in 2017, Erin organized a panel, um, on sexism and sexual violence at the AAAS, and it was filled. I don't, you know, the, the room itself was packed. Um, and I don't recall a time, um, at the triple conference, where there was, where it was so well attended and it just felt like those who came were really hungry for that kind of conversation. Um, And then the collection came out in 2018 and at the 2019 Asian American Feminisms Caucus that got reignited in this process at the Association for Asian American Studies Conference, we, those of us who attended the caucus, um, talked about more, you know, basically trying to keep panels going to create space for conversations on the topics raised in the collection. And I was really keen on continuing to create space specifically for conversations on sexual violence in Asian America. And so I volunteered to do that. And that's when I contacted Erin again to see if she'd be open to doing another panel for the 2020 conference on the themes, specifically in relation to the questions she asks in her essay for the collection.
2: I, uh, I haven't heard that origin story of the... Feminisms collection before, but I think how great it is that really that collection and then uh, this one we two came of the same impulse. Really was I mean from teaching from a need to have a text that we could teach right mm-hmm. because I had been um, I've been teaching a class on uh, dating and rape culture um, for almost ten years now uh, at UCSB every other year and it was, I found myself just scraping for pieces that I could use that uh, were actually specific to Asian American experience and specific to, that really spoke to my students' experiences, right? The the people sitting in the classroom with me.
1: And when did that decision come to make the project into a reader with um, art, nonfiction, poetry, fiction, memoir, um, as opposed to a more traditional format of academic essays?
2: Well, for me, I was thinking that um, we we wanted different ways of theorizing uh, Asian American experience around sexual violence, right? And we we wanted all of the avenues open. So whether that meant uh, visual arts or uh, or poetry or scholarship, you know, um, whatever tools people had at their disposal or whatever forms people felt would most help them express uh, or articulate, you know, their experience on them this kind of edge of uh, a theory, really, right? Um, we, we wanted all of that available.
1: So why name the collection hashtag We Too as a response to the hashtag Me Too movement?
2: I think that an easy reading of that shift in the title from me to to we would be a kind of additive move right but that's i'm actually hoping that that's not what people take away from reading the the collection because what we were trying to center is um first person experience right so instead of me as an object inside rape culture uh we You know, how are we formed? Um, What is the subject formation that racializes us and genders us and sexualizes us inside rape culture, right? So that's why the move to to we too. And of course, the the we does um, refer to an Asian American uh, subject.
3: I also think, well, I have experienced... Putting the reader together, as you know, an understanding that we want to start a conversation of turning to each other in some way. So there's a coalitional bent to the kinds of uh, to the understandings that we have about, you know, how are we going to end the violence, um, as opposed um, to the hashtag MeToo movement, which has in its hegemonic formations tended to turn more to an individualist appeal to carceral solutions.
1: I'm curious what the experience was like for the both of you as editors of a collection full of such intimate um, and personal uh, artwork and memoir. Um, particularly for you know those of us even in literary studies, we're still not really trained in how to um, give feedback to this kind of work. Um, and as speaking as an editor myself, I could feel the anxiety um, when I am approached to give feedback on something so personal. Um, and I'm wondering how you two uh, you know dealt with that anxiety.
2: Yeah, it was very stressful <laughs> yeah it was it was
3: stressful <laughs>
2: <laughs> I remember when we first got the even just the pitches in Chris and uh Shreen and I had this this kind of uh emotionally overwhelming moment we were like "What? Yeah. Have we what have we asked for you know um I mean, because the the pitches themselves are already so powerful and 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 so uh, so wrenching, you know. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and I, you know, I think that the process by which we went about the editorial process was also, I would say, fairly um, engaged throughout the process. So it wasn't, um, you know, I think we were really clear on inviting Zoom sessions when necessary and hopping on to chat about um, a piece both in process um, and in terms of finished drafts. So like a real openness to um, making sure that we were being faithful um, to, you know, how the contributors you know, what their voice, what they were wanting to communicate in their pieces. And I would say as well, like having the Asian American Writers Workshop become part of the collaboration was key in in this process as well.
1: To find out more about the reader and the experiences of writing for it, I asked the editors to recommend three contributors to interview. The first to respond was James McMaster, who is an assistant professor of gender and women studies and Asian-American studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is currently working on a book project that puts the discourse of care theory into conversation with queer, feminist, and Asian-American critique and cultural production. His writing has been in many journals, including Jazz, and in Woman and Performance, a journal of feminist theory, where he is also the co-editor with Olivia machico Gainyo of a special issue titled The Between, Couple Forms Performing Together. Uh, So James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here and being
4: willing to share your work. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: Your piece in the uh, Me Too Reader is titled My First on and Sexual Ethics. Um, a lot could be said there in that title, I suppose, that tells us what it's about. But can you tell us what it's about?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, so the piece tells a series of stories. And each story, I think, is about um, a specific first in my life. So my first love, my first kiss with another guy, my first boyfriend, my first time trying anal sex... And sort of centrally, my first experience as a victim of sexual assault. And um, I think of the piece sort of as a short work of auto-theory. And in it, I am really trying to show how each of my firsts, as an example, fails to fit within white heteronormative scripts and frameworks through which we are used to understanding questions of consent and sexual ethics more broadly, the kinds of concerns that have been, you know, taken to the forefront of public discussion by the Me Too movement.
1: And I believe you've prepared a short reading of your work. Um, Can you read it now?
4: Yes, definitely. Um, So right before, if I can contextualize just a little bit, right before the passage I'm about to read, um, I describe the moment of my first kiss with another guy who happens to have been a high school classmate and who also happens to be my best friend at the time. So I thought I just loved my best friend, but it turned out that I loved my best friend and he insisted he was straight. So um, here we go. We were two lonely brown boys just trying to survive the small minds of a small town where the racism, surprise, surprise, was constant. I played soccer growing up and the only other Filipino boy in my town was on my team. Whenever I had the ball, white parents screamed his name. Whenever he had the ball, they cheered for me. No one ever apologized or tried to learn the difference. In middle school, that same Filipino kid was pantsed during homeroom. Our white teacher, confused, called my parents to tell them it happened to me. Call it a trauma bond or call it a friendship. But what I had with my first love was my only sanctuary from all of this structural stupid. That is, until the armies of my desire arrived to raise our relationship to the ground. Overwhelmed by want and want, I eventually told him, quote, it hurts too much to be your friend. His reply felt like a lie, but I let it be true because I so badly wanted to, quote, what if I said that we should be more, end quote. What followed were flashes of something just short of sex. Mouths met moments that were once just fantasies. Hands held tight to things that seemed too good to be true. And were they? Was he expressing a queer impulse even more impossible than my own, or was he simply so in need of a friend that he would give his desires over as hostages to mine? I still don't know the answer to this question, but I do know how much that answer matters. In the former scenario, we're two closeted kids caught in a hurricane of heteronormativity desperately trying together to get to shelter, In the latter... I'm wearing a ski mask over my face as I hold our friendship like a handgun to the back of this boy's head, demanding whatever I can get from the bank vault of his body. I probably don't have to tell you that whatever we had between us didn't last. In my late 20s, I would find my first love on Facebook and send him a message apologizing for everything. When he wrote back, he said, we were kids. It wasn't absolution, but it was enough. These days, I return to these memories whenever I have to explain Lauren Berlant's work to students of queer theory. Nothing says cruel optimism like straight crush.
1: That's such a powerful um, last line and that entire section is very memorable. Um, and you introduced it by talking about auto theory and ended the uh, the quote with Lauren Berlant. And so I'm curious that to... Um, because you also have this in your subtitle on Gaijin sexual ethics, right? So there is there is a kind of um, gesture there, right, towards theory, towards the political. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Like, why uh, auto-theory and how do you see that working in this in this particular excerpt?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, you know I, I fell in love with this boy before I really knew that, I, that that was even an option, right? So I'll start with, like, I guess I'll start in the way that the piece invites me to start, which is through personal anecdote, and then I'll get to answering your question. Um, And I just, you know, I thought I really loved my best friend, and then I slowly realized that, like, I wanted to have sex with my best friend. And I found myself in this situation where my primary source of support around, you know, being newly gay or questioning my sexuality was also my object of desire, and it was an object of desire that I couldn't have. So an object of cruel optimism in the way that, you know, Berlant teaches us to think. Um, And it was a really painful situation. And, you know, the piece is partially about, um, you know, how that painful situation was caused by the fact that I was living in a time, which is to say the early aughts and in a place, which is to say, you know, rural, Republican, North Jersey, um, where the scripts of, you know, queer subject formation or sexual awakening or sexual possibility were just not made available to me. And so I was like, I was feeling around in the dark in some ways, figuratively and literally. Um, and I think the point um, is that like, I still don't know to what extent the kiss and the sexual encounters that I describe in that passage were harmful or pleasurable or ethical um, when, when placed against the larger socio social context that, you know, the We Too issue and the Me Too movement are trying to ask us to think about Um, you know, there's still uncertainty for me about what harms have been done between my first love and I, who's to blame, what accountability should look like, Um, even after I've had conversations with him as adults about what happened, right? Um, And I think the piece is really asking us, like, what do we do with that? What do we as queer Asians, when things aren't as cut and dry, as certain elements of the Me Too movement would seem to suggest, do with questions of accountability, which are utterly political and utterly ethical, as we're learning now um, every day more and more in this you know, sort of atmosphere of white nationalism and COVID and so on and so on.
1: Another kind of um, theoretical segue that you take in the... Um in the brief, uh, work is the, uh, the form of a coincidence report, which I have to say, I didn't know, uh, about until I read your piece. Um, and so I'm just, so you can explain if you like, yeah, yeah. but, uh, it's, it's a term that Andrea Long true coins, right. While interpreting Claudia Rankin's work. And so I, I guess you could call it a part of the larger umbrella of what's been named auto theory these days or theory of the flesh. Or I would, I want to yeah. Call it.
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, So I'll say that I've been thinking with this article, which is titled Study in Blue by Andrea Longchu for some time. Andrea and I went to graduate school together, and um, we were both on the Women in Performance Editorial Collective when she published this piece. And I think it's important to, to, when, when thinking about what the coincidence report is, is to remember that Andrea theorizes it sort of in opposition to or as an alternative to what we all know as the incident report which is a sort of of matter-of-fact accounting of an event that is assembled by the cops or, as Andrea says, HR after something has happened. So it uses witnesses, it uses evidence, um, it's all written down, and then there's an account of an event, right? The status of an event is defined, it's sort of crystallized, we can point to it and say, that happened, we have proof, right? Um, And the coincidence report is very different because it's, It's what happens when an artist or a theorist or a writer um, like Claudia Rankine um, or like myself, lol, but I would put myself in the same category as Claudia Rankine in this brief instance. Um, But it's when when an artist or theorist or writer cobbles together an event um, whose status is uncertain even to the people who have experienced it, right? So in the example of the passage you just read, it's like, was that first kiss unethical? Was that first kiss consensual? We both don't know. We're both not sure. Um, What I'm not talking about in a coincidence report, right, is a situation in which um, one party involved in a sexual encounter is sure that a rape has happened and is sure that a sexual assault has happened and the other party disagrees. What I'm talking about is genuine uncertainty. And I think one of the things the piece is trying to reckon with is what we do in those circumstances of genuine uncertainty when those circumstances of genuine uncertainty are also possibly laced with harm, with trauma, with damage, with ordinary discomfort, and so on. So in the piece, you know, each of the firsts that I recount is sort of a coincidence report in itself. Um, And I recount them, I think, in order to put a little bit of pressure on the notion that you know, we can look at any given sexual exchange and decide this was good or bad, this was ethical or unethical. Um, this can be known for certain in its entirety and in its totality, and that we therefore should follow a series of protocols um, according to what we know about the event. I'm, I'm wanting to think, have us think about the ways that, especially for queers, queers of color, especially for queers of color who are young and unexposed to larger cultural scripts that have since been written by our people what do we do and how do we know when we're in the middle of something that we don't deserve to be in the middle of um, and vice versa what do we do and how do we know when we're in the middle of something that feels the way it's supposed to feel um, because it's the kinds of pleasure the kinds of care that we deserve
1: Well, James, thank you so much for being here, um, being part of this wonderful conversation uh, and being willing to share your work with us here today. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I really appreciate um, you taking the time.
1: My second contributor interview was with Mashuk Mushtaq Dean, who is a 2018 Lambda Literary Award winner. And a 2020 silver medalist for India's International Sultan Padamsi Playwriting Prize. His publications include two plays, Draw the Circle and The Betterment Society, as well as short stories and essays. His plays have been produced in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Chapel Hill, and he is a resident playwright at New Dramatists, a core writer at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis, and his work has been supported by many institutes and foundations. Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to share your work.
0: I'm happy to be asked. Thanks for having me.
1: Your piece in the Me Too Reader is titled A Letter to a Thousand Other Mothers. Can you tell us a bit of uh, what it's about?
0: Yeah, it's a letter to my mother about sexual assault. Uh, the whole, I feel like that whole the whole uh, topic was um, sexual assault and rape. So it's a letter to my mother about um, a rape that I never told her about and probably could never tell her about, or at least that's how I feel right now. And for the reason that it feels hard to talk with her specifically as my mother, and also because I feel it would cause her pain to know these things, and I I don't want to cause her unnecessary pain. It's also that about that experience from my point of view as a transgender man and in the context of the Me Too movement today.
1: And I believe you've prepared a short reading of your work, if you uh, don't mind reading that now.
0: Sure. Um, okay. I used to think that all men were bad. Not the men in our immediate family, but all other men. I don't know when I started to think this. Maybe in college? Or when I was hospitalized for my depression? There were so many women in the hospital who had been abused, harassed, stalked, raped, assaulted, coerced. As adults and also when they were children. Sometimes once, sometimes many times over many years. It seemed a safe bet to say all men were bad until proven otherwise. It seemed prudent. Except gay men, and except the exceptions. But as a rule, all men were suspicious until proven otherwise. And I hadn't been raped yet, but I had had experiences with men that were confusing, uncomfortable, maybe bad. Or maybe the bad part was me for opening the door to those kinds of experiences. That's part of what makes it confusing. You said when boys and girls got together, especially in this country where there were no morals and no decency, bad things happened. And so when bad things did happen, I didn't think I could tell you about it because maybe when you looked at me, I would see disgust or disappointment on your face. And I didn't think you were right, but for some reason I kept having bad experiences. I was 15, 18, 19 years old, and every time it was, well, not great. My friends had boyfriends, and I wanted one too. And it felt good to have somebody pay so much attention to me. And there was a a kind of touch that felt nice, being held, being able to lean on someone. But it seemed like if I wanted that kind of touch, I had to put up with the other kind of touch, the kind that was insistent, that tried to get under my clothes and wanted to take something from me. And I know I shouldn't tell you this because you'll think I had no morals, but it wasn't like I was against having someone touch my skin softly. And it wasn't that the touch wasn't usually soft. Often it was. It's just that it didn't seem to matter whether it was my skin or not. These guys weren't interested in me, who I was, being with me specifically. I was just a girl like any other girl, exchangeable, replaceable. But that's not completely fair, because weren't they exchangeable to me too? These weren't men I was dating. I wasn't dating anyone. These were men who hit on me, and I didn't know what was meant. But then, when they came at me, when they made clear their desire, I didn't understand it. I couldn't understand why they saw a girl when they looked at me. I didn't have the words to say this back then, but I knew somehow that I wasn't a girl, and so it caught me by surprise when they acted as if I was. Every single time I dissociated, I left my body. I watched. Three different men, three times my body went limp, Three times they didn't seem to care or mind. They kept going. I had asked for this in a way. I had walked into the room. I had not said no, but also I had not been able to say no. I had walked in, but I had no idea how to walk out, how to get away. Sometimes I'm mad at you for never teaching me how to get away. Sometimes I'm mad at myself for opening a door I could not close. I still don't really know why I dissociated or why it happened so fast. Maybe because I didn't yet know I was a man, because they treated my body as if it was a woman's body, and some part of me just froze, disappeared, couldn't be around when it happened. Now when I dissociate, which is not often, I assume it has to do with the rape. At least there's clarity now. And I'll stop my excerpt there.
1: Thank you. That was so powerful. And I can really hear the um, your own experience as a playwright, I think, coming through <laughs> in the language and, and the way that you perform the piece. You started the um the excerpt talking about you know what is bad, um, how do we know what is bad? who is bad? Um, and then, you know, that kind of gives way to the more personal narrative. Um, do you mind talking a bit about you know that process of of writing it and speaking those events?
0: yeah i'm I'm not exactly sure um where to begin to answer that because I can think of four different ways to to sort of enter, but I'll start by saying, When the Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford hearings happened a few years ago, I was glued to the TV, um, and my parents were also glued to the TV, and it was this strange experience of when we would get on the phone, we would sort of talk about the hearings, so we were sort of talking about sexual assault in the context of the hearings, but it was also clear to me that I wasn't going to use this moment to, um, to tell them about my own assault, and I wondered about that. I... I wondered what it was that held me back. And even if the person, Dean, is um, sure that I'm not going to talk about it, the writer is very curious about why and what gets in the way. And, um, And at the time, I was working on a memoir, which I still am. And so as part of an early draft, I started to write about that, this sort of letter to my mom about us watching the Kavanaugh hearings together and all the things that I was finding too hard to say to her. Um, And it's, you know, I mean, I think for me, a lot of writing is something inspires it in the moment, but for months or maybe even years, things are sort of filtering through or I'm feeling frustrated about something or I'm questioning why I, I have a behavior or a reaction to something. And so I think also there's things about how I felt about the Me Too movement and the complicated feelings I was having that were finding an outlet outlet in this piece as well. Um, and just the complicated place of being a man who is transgender at this time, who has both experienced sexual assault and is now seen as a man. Um, and most people won't know that I'm a transgender man unless they they know me personally. And so it's a it's a complicated place to be, and i I think in some ways it's what makes um, me a good writer in that like there's never an easy place for me to stand. Everything is always complicated, and that's part of the lens through which I write. Um, so it's hard, but I think it's also good
1: on that note, your piece, um, as you say, also provides a quite unique point of view in terms of the the reader and as you were saying with the MeToo movement in general. Um, and that you're also thinking about how your own transition affected your views about the conversations that we have about sexual assault and masculinity. Um, You write, quote, When I came to understand that I was a man, I fought it. I didn't want to be one of those bad men, which was every man. And so again, bring us back to the (laughs) the kind of badness that you begin the excerpt with. Um, Can you talk a bit about this?
0: Yeah, and... It's such a simplistic view, you know, now I can look back and say, of course, it's much more complicated than men are bad and women are good or something like that. But growing up, I, I absorbed certain messages, perhaps I felt in danger or had it had bad experiences with some men, so many of my friends had been hurt, you know, like all of this probably played into a really simplistic way of thinking about things. And it's ironic, because I actually think a lot of the culture we live in, and a lot of what happens on social media, um, really simplifies things in a way that I don't think helps us, um, simplifies conversations into things that are good and bad. Um, and I think people so rarely are good and bad. I think for me, the, the party line that I experience, particularly on social media is that, um, Men as a species are assholes, <laughs> and men who admit to this are good, and men who do not admit to this are bad and I got it's really funny because for me, I think that's how I thought of the world, especially before I transitioned, and part of what made it so hard for me to transition is I didn't want to become one of those men, and I was so afraid that just the act of transitioning I would turn into this thing I was afraid of this this thing that had hurt people I knew and I think when I transitioned, I was perhaps given a view or I was allowed access to this other part of the world that I hadn't seen. And it was much more complicated than that. I see how men are hurt by other men, how the system of patriarchy is hurting all of us, how small and narrow the boxes are for little boys. And that continues all the way up um, for grown men. And at some point you internalize the box and it becomes your home, but it is a very small box that boys are put into. And I, um, I hope I'm not rambling, but like when I was a child, I, I, you know, there are disadvantages because I'm a girl in this society. Of course there are, or there was. And, um, but you know, I was able to wear jeans and roughhouse and do all this stuff well into my teenage years. If I had been born a little boy, um, And I had felt an affinity for things that were feminine. Very early on, I would have been taught either by my parents or by peer pressure or by who knows who that that was a dangerous thing to do. That was a wrong thing to do. And I know it's changing slightly, but still, I would say for the vast majority of little boys, very early on, the message of um, don't cry, don't be weak, don't be vulnerable, I think is a strong message. And and as a transgender man, I, in strange ways, both receive the socialization that women receive and because I identify with men, picked up on all the sort of the cues from movies and things about what it is to to be a man. And so I ended up uh, somehow trying to synthesize both of those things at the same time. And I think that, you know, we sometimes forget that the system of patriarchy right? It's bad for everyone. It hurts little boys. It hurts boys that are bullied with other boys, which I said. It hurts women and trans folks and all genders. And I think we forget that people are not systems, especially on social media. I think people get really lazy in the rhetoric. And instead of saying patriarchy is bad, toxic masculinity is X, Y, Z, some men are. Instead, people often say men are dot, dot, dot. And my friends, people I know, people who are my, um, I don't know, we're all on the same side. And they talk about men in this way as if men are one monolithic thing and as if they are equivalent with the patriarchy. And I know if I questioned them, they'd say, Oh, not you. Or no, I don't mean like all men, but I do think it's a problem to, to, to say, to say it with those broad strokes for one, because it's not true, because all men are not anything. Um, And it it really continues to narrow the small space that males are allowed to occupy. And so rather than make the problem better, I have this deep fear that it's going to make the problem worse, that it will back people into corners and intensify violence instead of saying, and this is what I wish we could say to men, you know, patriarchy has been hard on all of us. It's been hard on you. It's been hard on your sons as well as your daughters let's do away with it because it's going to be good for all of us if we do that.
1: Well, Mashuk thank you so much for coming here, for being willing to share your voice and your story
0: oh, you're uh, so with welcome. us
1: today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. The third contributor never responded to my request for an interview but in lieu of their interview and contribution I can say a couple things about my own piece in the collection which is about uh, patriarchy it's about my son being born in 2017 and how that caused me to look at my own um, mixed-race family my own history uh, my own father and the piece was written during the COVID-19 pandemic, as many of the pieces in the collection were. Uh, And I found that, you know, as Aaron and Shireen had encouraged me to keep writing it, um, even through the difficult times, that it began to trickle in a little bit every day. Um, And it was really thanks to their encouragement that a piece that I never imagined writing but always had in my head um, was able to, you know, trickle in enough that I was actually able to finish something during the pandemic. Um, and many of the other contributors, it seems, went through similar experiences. In my interview with Erin and Shireen, we discussed the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the collection.
3: The stress of COVID-19 and the consequences of the lock, you know, the, the quarantining and just all the daily stresses that Accumulated because of the disease. In addition, just to the the scares that people had about their own health and their family's health, um, it we we ended up losing some pieces. You know, some some contributors um, that um, had put forward pieces and that we were hoping to include um, ended up not being able to. And so that's one really. Strong impact that the COVID nineteen and the lockdowns had on the issue. Um, I also think that both of us were really clear. The you know w- that the writing that our contributors had to do uh, for this collection was was wrenching. Right, it was difficult. Um, and emotionally physically it takes its toll on the body um and so we were really really keen on as editors s- figuring out how to support um our contributors along the way and understanding how do we take care of each other in the process um i i I just think that everything that was happening, you know, of course, then in the summer with the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings that happened, it really, it, on the one hand, it made the kind of silence uh, around sexual violence, um, it amplified it um, as all of these other things were happening. Um, and it made the urgency for the issue much more apparent, but also the difficulties of. Sort of articulating the things that our contributors had to articulate.
2: The urgency—I felt the urgency of the issue more, but I also felt like there was less space for it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because all, all of the media oxygen was taken up, and you know, by rightfully important things. And then it's—and it's, mm-hmm. and yet, I, I, I also felt a great deal of frustration that here, this also incredibly important conversation about sexual violence had really just gotten traction. You know, I was so um, devastated at the thought that now we, we were not supposed to attend to it. And then what would happen if we, we, we kind of dropped this thread?
1: So how do you all feel now that the issue is out and um, making an impact?
3: I think... Oh, I feel tired <laughs> and I also feel very excited um, now that this is um, out and it's living. I, my hope is that um, one, it can it can continue to sort of transform people, um, give language to people, encourage them to start to speak about things that maybe they couldn't speak about. They didn't have the language or the stories to be able to connect with and um, you know, I have background um, as a popular educator, and some of my hopes in terms of the impact is that these stories, you know, the work in there, all of the pieces can can actually maybe even translate into you know workshops, uh, consciousness raising workshops. You know, certainly, I the hope is for the classroom, you know, for it to take off there. Um, but I, I also see it as something that can inspire activist um, kinds of work that actually go into communities. Um, at least I think it plants seeds for that.
2: Yeah, likewise, I, I hope, like Shireen, that it becomes a kind of uh, touchstone or, or starter dough, you know, <laughs> in <With> COVID terms, <Yeah. laughs> for uh, other, or other writings and other spaces that can, can grow from it.
1: Well, Aaron and Shireen, thank you so much for joining me and joining uh, this podcast, being part of the inaugural episode of this podcast about your amazing and very necessary special issues. Thank you so much for, for being here.
3: Thank you for inviting you so
1: us. That's all for the first episode of the Jazz Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Patterson. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was produced as a collaboration between the Journal of Asian American Studies and the New Books Network. It is produced by the Journal of Asian American Studies. It is mixed by myself and Moses Caliboso. And the music featured in it is by the local Vancouver band Necking. Yeah,